Hello everyone, my name is Vanessa Menendez Covello and this is the Fresh Needle podcast where I interview fresh graduates and acupuncture students from all over the world and we discuss their experiences as students or running their own clinics, particularly in these very weird times of COVID-19. I want to tell you about an amazing opportunity that is opening up for new graduates who are looking to build their acupuncture practice. Nava Karman is a leading acupuncturist and herbalist specializing in fertility, gynecology, and the immune system. She has run the fertility support company for over 20 years. Nava is launching a new mastermind group exclusively for new graduates. This mastermind group will meet every two weeks to provide mentoring, guidance, and inspiration, and will focus on clinical skills and the practicalities of building a business. This will be a close-knit group of practitioners who will work together for a year to develop the skills and habits required to be clinically effective and financially successful. I recently did a session with Nava, and what I like the most about it is how safe I felt about discussing my fears and worries. I came out of it with a list of very practical, achievable steps to implement change. There are only six places in the group, so you need to apply quickly. Go to www.fertilitysupport.expert forward slash graduate. Welcome, everyone. Our guest today is Sean Clear. Sean qualified in acupuncture from the College of Integrated Chinese Medicine in Reading, UK, in 1997. After working in clinics in London, he traveled the world treating hundreds of tsunami survivors in Sri Lanka and trafficking victims in southern India. On his return to the UK, Sean started his own clinic in London called E5 Acupuncture, where he practices multi-bed acupuncture. His practice has three individual rooms where patients can receive acupuncture at a very, very reasonable cost. Welcome, Sean. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited that we are talking on the podcast. For our listeners, Sean and I have actually known each other um, in terms of waving past um, each other in the yoga studio that we've been going to for many, many years. But that was when I was still working in the city. You were already an acupuncturist. So it was many years before I decided to to qualify. Yeah, yeah. Small world, though. small world. It is a very small world. And you became at some point the acupuncturist to the yogis. I did. I did. I spent, um, I think, five years in India, in Mysore which was a kind of wonderful accident. Accident. I took uh, a year out was a plan initially. Um, I think it was, it was after seven years of being in practice and I felt I was a bit stagnant and I loved acupuncture but was not possibly enjoying so much how I was practicing and couldn't work out how to change that. So I decided to take a year out and the year turned into five years. Um, it initially started with, um, I was one of the kind of founding group of world medicine. So we did lots of trips mm. to Sri Lanka and worked with the tsunami survivors, which was an incredible privilege. And then randomly I ended up in Mysore in southern India and um, was still looking for a similar kind of way to work as I'd experienced in Sri Lanka and was introduced to um a uh, uh, home in, in Mysore that rescues and rehabilitates survivors of, of trafficking. And I started a small acupuncture project there. Um, and as a way to 
to live in the community there and also to practice to earn some some pennies to stay there. I started working with the yogis, of which, you know, is, is part of your extended family, even though we didn't meet at that point. And so yeah, I had a I had a wonderful time and I stayed for five years and it was a pivotal moment in my life, I'd say, and that and the, and the privilege more than anything else. I remember actually I think my first acupuncture session ever um, was in Mysore. It must have been, I think it was something like 2005. Were you there already? Okay. No, I think I arrived maybe 2006. Maybe maybe 2006. I, I, I arrived a year or so after tsunami. So. Yeah, maybe yes. No, it was the summer. It was the summer of the 90th birthday, and then, um, yeah, I was I was very sore from everything, and there was some some Canadian guy who yeah. treated me in my in my bedroom, you know, <laughs> on the floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was like nice. You know, the, the houses in Mysore didn't really have beds. You had like a mattress on the floor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was how my clinic was in Mysore with the Ashtangis with the yoga community. And it was it was interesting because I I just come back from Sri Lanka and it was quite although it was wonderful work that we were we were lucky enough to participate in it was intense and exhausting and I got to the end of I think that month long trip and came to Mysore which meant nothing to me to meet a friend and I was just interested in collapsing for a few weeks and then people heard that I was an acupuncturist and you know Ashtangis have some aches and pains here and there so. Um, and then the next thing I knew, I started doing a bit and a bit and a bit, and then and then cues out the door and people on the beds and on the floor, and which was really enjoyable. And also to work with work with um, a demographic that I've not worked with in in, in that way, in the you know for people that don't know, um, you know, aside from spiritual aspect to Ashtanga, if it's just views of physical practice, which it is not just that, it's it's very high level and you know almost that. Happened kind of level on a physical basis so it was really interesting to work interesting to work with people it absolutely is because um, so for our listeners um, we practice Ashtanga yoga which is very very physical it's quite gymnastic and then you find yourself in really weird situations sometimes with injuries I remember many years ago going to the osteopath and saying to him um, he was like what's the problem and I said well my right hip hurts when I put my right leg behind my head. <laughs> and he just stayed silent for a while and he said, have you tried not putting your leg yeah, behind yeah, yeah, your yeah. head? <laughs> I think the answer's in the question. Um, and that was that was my experience because I'd, I'd been practicing for seven years in, in the UK and um, a large part of that I was working in a physiotherapy practice and and, I, you know, because it's a daily practice as well, actually, for people that don't know, so people would come in and say, yeah, those kind of things, you know, when I sit in full lotus or I put my leg behind my head or I remember having an early conversation with one practitioner and saying, you know, okay, so yeah, just take a few days rest. And he looked, cool. at, me, he looked at me and said, okay, so that's not going to happen. So you need to, you need to, um, you need to work around me. And that was quite liberating for me too, because it's, it's, you know, people are there, it's their passion. They're going to practice on a daily basis. They might only get to go to India once in their life sometimes. And so, you know, I had to drop more of my preconceived sort of structures, which is always liberating as a practitioner, I think. Absolutely. At the time, I remember that the recommended stay in Mysore was three months. And mm -hmm. then... Was this saying that uh, what was it? 
it was something like on the first month you are kind of fine on the second month you are going to fall apart <laughs> and then on the third month you kind of rebuild yourself and it was in, indeed my experience but we're talking about something quite extreme and when I was in the student clinic at my college one of my first patients was a, was an Ashtangi friend and when I was having the discussion with my supervisor, my supervisor said, well, her knee hurts, she needs to stop exercising for two weeks. And I was like, Haha, that's just not going to happen. No, no. Yeah, we, we, we should all have room to learn. It's good. It's good. Yes, but you were doing that. But on the other hand, you were also treating a very, very different population of people that had suffered trafficking and were incredibly traumatized. And there was also a language barrier, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the barriers were yeah, language, cultural, philosophical. Um, it, it took me, I, I, I was, you know, knowing that we we're going to have this conversation, I try to remember and, you know, time gets more elastic as the years go by. But, I, you know, I feel like it took me maybe six months of spending time in the centre and treating the two, the two men that ran the centre. That was how I was trying to get in because, you know, they'd not experienced acupuncture, they didn't know me and they were, you know, wanted to experience that I would go and spend time and treat them. Um, and then, yeah, it, it just, it, I think it was after working in Sri Lanka, I started to, to realize that, that, you know, that the power of acupuncture without much communication can be, can be huge. And, um, you know, so for these, the women and children in, in that center had been through horrific experiences that, um, thankfully most of us will, will, will never have to experience, um, but in order to provide a service for them, to be of service for them, because I do think that's our role as practitioners is to be of service. Um, I had to fit with their models, their philosophies, their thoughts. You, you know, the questions became very, very simple. How's your sleep? How's your energy? Mm. Headaches. And that, that was kind of it. And then, and then trust in the beauty of the acupuncture system mental, physical, emotional, that, you know, okay, if I can find a bit about the sleep pattern and, the, you know, this person's waking at night, having bad dreams, okay, so it's kind of, you know, we're treating that, but then we know behind that there's likely to be some trauma. Um, but actually we don't, we, we don't need that story to hopefully be of some use. And it, so, it, yeah, that, that's what I set up. And I'd go in, say, three times a week, and they'd all lie in one huge room. And people would come and go and sing and shout and kick each other. And, you know, it was pure mad, but it was fantastic. And that's really interesting because sometimes I find, I mean, I'm a really, really new acupuncturist, but sometimes I do wonder um, when someone sits in front of me and they, they talk and talk and talk and talk. And I'm always obviously happy to listen and trying to extract the information I need from, from those conversations. And people definitely need to be heard. But at the same time, sometimes you have, you find inconsistencies. So someone says, oh, you know, I've got 10 out of 10 energy. I'm always bouncing around. And then you feel their pulses and you're like, hmm, I'm not sure. You know, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. it feels like this person's really, really tired. So in a way, it's it's almost like, I don't know, a more sincere way of, of, of communication when you just have to go with 
um, really simple questions and, and what you feel in their pulses or, or any palpation that you might be able to do, which imagine it would be quite modest, you know, arms, legs, and that would be it probably. Yeah, absolutely minimal. It's hands and feet really. And, you know, we'd strike a deal most of the time with, with the new kids that came, just one needle, that was it. That was it. And, and, and I think you're right about, you know, people do need to talk and they should be able to talk. And it's nice that we can be, uh, um, we can listen and hear them and be, and receive that. But equally, we're, we're not, I know some, some practices are, but I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a counsellor. So it's, I remember a long, long time ago when I was recently qualified and I was working at the College of Integrated Chinese Medicine where I studied in Reading, which was great because I got to start practice there. I was working in admin, mm. make, make up some money, and I also get to, got to go to all this CPD that I wanted to. And there was um, a teacher practitioner, and I might get his name wrong, and apologies if I do, but I feel like he was called Tong and he was from Vietnam and he was quite well known. I think he possibly had a teaching school at some point in uh, in London and he described what you described. I mean, it's not very flattering. <laughs> but I still remember it. He said, oh, you know, patients are like cows. They kind of come into the to the treatment room and they're wandering around the field and they have to wander around, wander around, wander around. And then finally they sit down and relax and you can do your job, which is not, not you know, not a very flattering way to look at it, but, but there's, there's truth in that, I think, that kind of, you know, circling and they settle. And even though there's useful information for us in that, there's, you know, don't need all of it, I guess. I'm just remembering um, talking to a very, very well-known, very senior female um, teacher of Ashtanga Yoga years ago who said, she, what she said was about um, getting pregnant because a lot of Ashtanga women are, find it difficult um, to get pregnant for several reasons. Uh, many times they're exercising a lot. Many times they're very thin. Many times they're just, you know, a bit older. And um, this teacher said, you have to be like a cow, fat and happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe we all do. It sounds good. <laughs> At the time, I remember thinking, what? Yeah. But I kind of get what she said. She said, you know, you have mm. to have some, some fat on you because mm. you do, and, and you have to be quite relaxed about it, which is difficult. But it seems like the cow similarities <laughs> or, or comparisons abound. And I think, and I think that, like, like, you, like you said wisely, that especially though, the first time we see somebody or the first and second or I was talking to somebody who's a psychologist and describing that sometimes how I can experience somebody. I've, ne I've never met them before. I've had no communication at all. They've booked in. They've arrived. So they've chosen to come. They've paid to come. And here, and here we are. And, it, and you can sense a kind of resistance in them. Mm. And you can almost come away and say, well, well, I don't know what I did. <laughs> you came here. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I've offended you so much. You know, not overtly, but there's something. And she said, Sean, you have to remember that for lots of people, they arrive angry and disappointed. There's a kind of, you know, people are experiencing suffering. And, and, and you kind of you have to wait for that to smooth or something. And I think, I think that's part of that wandering around the field, sitting down. Um, yeah, 
That's true. That's absolutely true. And sometimes we just, we don't necessarily know what is it that we're providing that will work for them. So I have a friend who um, went to a psychologist many years ago who said that helped her enormously. But she said that for the first, I don't know, maybe eight treatments that she had, she would arrive there, sit down and say nothing. And after an hour, the psychologist will say, thank you, that's it for today. But she would come back. And then she said that after, I don't know, eight weeks or something like that, she started talking. And then from there on, she made a lot of progress and she was very happy with the help that she had. But she sat down and said nothing. And sometimes, yeah, it's really difficult as a practitioner to not take personally um, if the patient doesn't behave as you think they should behave and you're projecting. I'm, I'm, I totally project um, stuff onto my patients, sadly, but... We all do. Yeah. We all do. I think it is, it's a perfectly normal way to feel. I think in some ways there's, there's you know, I, I've been practicing 20-something years and, and, you know, I've been lucky enough to have been, had a busy and varied practice life um, and still do and and still I, I kind of have a sense of, of kind of nervousness when I come to the clinic every day and I think that's okay because because it's it's you know we care and we and we and we want people to experience the change they want and we're human beings we want validation in what we do but the you know the, tr- the tricky part is to be not taking responsibility how they feel positive or negative and that's super hard impossible but we just we just try to do that yes and did you find because i i'm I'm imagining if i was in mysore treating such different populations and i'm trying to imagine what would go through my head and i'm very judgy i'm a judgy person so i think i would find it difficult to treat a population that has suffered enormously and then move on to practice on or with the ashtanga people in Mysore are privileged. Hmm. They're privileged because they come from countries that are wealthier than India. So they go there and they have money to spend and, and you know, they get a really nice food. And hmm. so I don't know if I would be like, I would struggle with that difference. And I might struggle to come down to the understanding that at the end of the day, suffering is suffering and it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally hear you. And I think... You know, a, a simple way probably when I first started for me was to think, okay, this this work is paying for this work essentially. Working with the yoga students and being being, but I was, wasn't charging much, but I was charging something, and, and obviously cost living costs were those. So enabled me to stay there and do the other work on a no fee basis, which was always the hundred percent how it was going to be. So I could look at it like that, but actually it's just what I think I learned then and continue to learn is that everything informs everything else. And, and even even because you talk about being judgmental, and I think we all are, but actually my experience of the people I work with in the in the home was that they they were I don't know so strong, so amazing, so 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 it's almost judgmental of us to to feel pity for them. I think to be compassionate, yes, to help where we can, yes, but to. I don't know. I don't think that's what they're looking for. So I, I hear you, but it's it's you know it's just different, and it's interesting how you kind of 
what I found over time was was you know so I'd go into work with the with the residents and like we were discussing so there's language and culture and philosophical differences there's where you can needle on the body how much information you can get so that in some way that's like okay that's that's a you could call that a reduced practice or something but actually I found that there was more power in that and that started to inform practice I was doing elsewhere with people that were coming and paying for treatment, I would end up treating them more like that because I found it more powerful and cleaner somehow. And that's and it's that story that has then come back with me to, to London. And I joke sometimes with people, our little clinic here in Hackney is like a, you know, a pharaoh and ball and pendant light version of the huge room in Mysore with 20 kids and loads of noise and Mm. And it was it was you who recommended uh, to me that book, um, Acupuncturist Like Noodles. Yeah. Fantastic book. I really, really enjoyed it. And, mm. and it's really made me think a lot about it because, and then that's going to lead us to your current clinic because what's happening to me at the moment is I charge a price that's, you know, consistent for the area where I live in. And I live in a fairly well-off part of London, so a lot of people can afford to come, and a lot of people come regularly just for tune-ups. But then from time to time, you get the person um, that that you know has actually made a, a strong financial effort to come mm. to see you because they really feel quite desperate in need of, of help that at the time the NHS cannot provide or something like that. And then I feel really... I feel guilty, and I feel there mm. must be a better way. And... In that sense, I really like the model that, that you've got in your clinic. So would you like to talk us through how you decided to have that set up? Yeah, sure. Like I say, initially initially came via India and Sri Lanka, I think. Before I left to go to India, I was probably in the physio clinic. I was working in a couple of rooms at a time. And, and, and I, I enjoy that way of working. I enjoy I enjoy moving around. I, I enjoy moving from person to person. That maintains my energy, and I think that maintains my focus, actually. Um, so then doing huge groups in Sri Lanka, I'm huge groups in Sri Lanka, and then quite big groups in India. You know, maybe there'd be 20, 20 women and children lying at one point sometimes. Um, it, it just fed me I can't explain it as a so, it's, so you know it's a nice thing to do for people but also it's how I prefer to practice so it's actually a selfish act so then when I came back to London initially I started working in some big yoga centers like try yoga and in a more kind of one-on-one -on -one basis which was which was great but it kind of it just wasn't suiting me it just didn't I described it as like having a grain of sand in my eye it's kind of like I could I could live with it but eventually I'd go blind again it just it just it just was grating somehow so then I started to look at different ways to work and it was only when I came back that multi-bed was seemed to be kind of taken off in this country and so I just started looking at the different models um and tried a couple of clinics and looked at all the information out there and read the acupuncture uh, like noodles and the American organization. I can't remember the name. Uh, ACMAC is the UK one. They were great. And I think it's called POCA or something, the American one. I can't remember. And, and then just started really my way of doing things is to really to write everything down and look at different models and talk to people I respect. Not, not necessarily acupuncturists, but, but talk to, to people that I know and respect and, and there was something about, and this is only for me, so this is not to be 
disparaging about however any anyone else practices or any kind of multi-bed or multi-room setup. The, the, the sliding scale didn't work for me. It, it kind of, I can't explain it. It just, it just, I wanted to set a price that I was confident in that was a good deal. In my mind was a good deal. And that was it. And that's where the conversation ends. Because it can be, I find as a practitioner, exactly what you're saying. When somebody comes and you know they're, they're in, you know, they're struggling more financially. And then, oh, do you decide to give a discount or this or that, some session? Or, I didn't, I actually didn't want any of that. I wanted, I wanted mm. it to be as clean as possible. So we set a low price and a price that depended on numbers. And then, and, and, and that's kind of how it works. I also, you know, experimented mentally with the idea of that, that a lot of places do recliners or couches in one room. And what I decided again for myself was that I wanted my own place, a shop front, and I, and I wanted semi-private spaces. So the model we came up with through, through some very clever people that were not me um, were these kind of birch ply three-quarter height cubicles that you've seen. Yep. Um, and so, you know, people are in their own space, but they're within the same space. And, um, yeah, I think it works. It's just interesting when you kind of – you have res- that kind of cliched old thing where you have restrictions and you work within those restrictions and actually magic happens that you, you can't even predict. And so, for instance, these cubicles, as I, yeah, like I say, three-quarter height, they're the size of a couch and a walk around the couch space and a sink, and that's it. But then actually they become these pods that are very kind of cozy – so people feel very cozy, but they're, they're open above your head. So you're still spacious and you're still in the room. And you're um, and as a practitioner, then you can kind of keep your energy and your ears and eyes on everybody. And that's, yeah, that's kind of how we run. I wanted it to be a clinic that first and foremost was a benefit to patients. That meant practitioners could enjoy, firstly enjoy every part of the work, that there was no compromise where possible and and hopefully get paid well so or, or at least you know what we deserve yeah and it's been i think eight years now and there's three of us here at the minute we're looking for more people now and it's it's feels it feels like my perfect at the moment but it ha- it constantly has to change to maintain that but that's that's the model does that kind of answer your question I hope. It does, it does, yes. And I have been to your clinic once. It was in um, fairly um, interesting circumstances, so my mind was half there, half somewhere else. I love the, the little pods or rooms. They are not huge, but that, as you say, they feel quite cosy. You use a lot of natural materials. There's, there's wood, there's stone. Um, and I quite liked that, that it wasn't like, you know, um, there wasn't a lot of, I don't know, cement or plaster. It somehow felt... Um, almost quite um, live. So I really did enjoy it. And I didn't feel that um, I was getting um, any different treatment that you would get on a one-to-one purely on a person, you know, with a practitioner that only sees one person at a time. I felt I was getting your full attention and yeah. Yeah, that was that, that was another big thing for me. And again, this is just from my point of view. So this isn't to say anything about how anyone else might practice that I didn't want for me, it's not a compromise, this way of practice. For me, this is the best of me. I'm not saying that's the best, but it's the best of me. 
and um, so I don't want it. I don't want it to feel like a compromise. So we invest heavily in the important things, and the rest we don't. So the space is small. We don't have a receptionist, but we have hydraulic couches. We have all the best hygiene stuff. It's it's a lovely shop front. It's kind of it's, it's that kind of thing, um, and it's the only way I work. I don't I don't work, and again that's that's just for me, and that felt important too. That this is you know I put my whole self into this and um, just work this way. And, and I really enjoy it. Like I say, I really, I think as a practitioner, I think it's easy to think, okay, how can we, how can we provide a good service for patients at a reduced price, which of course is really important. But I find as a practitioner, I find it liberating because, because there's less pressure. I don't, I don't feel like I have to, provide extra value for anyone. I don't feel like um, I have to pad the time at all. We're in and we're out and that, and that's yeah. it. And, and we don't ever do anything like, um, we don't do blocks of treatment. Sometimes people ask for a discount. I just say, no, that's it. Just don't book 10, book one, book two. If somebody comes the first time and say, have two sessions and see how you feel. That's the most important thing. And, uh, and I find that liberating to not getting into long, long conversations and predictions about stuff that none of us can really say for sure. <laughs> yes, no, that's got to be really freeing because for me, I, I'm, I'm always, I guess, I don't know if it's an Ashtanga thing or just a me thing, but I've always been very, very aware that I have a very limited amount of energy. Um, you know, kind of like the spoon theory that the people with chronic fatigue symptoms use, like they have... 10 spoons and they know that each activity is going to cost them two or three spoons or whatever. Yeah. So for me, that conversation around, do you do block discounts? Um, I can't afford to come so often. Um, what's the ideal frequency if I only want to spend this, mu this much money? It really exhausts me. It stresses me out because money conversations are uncomfortable <laughs> um, and it does actually waste quite a lot of my energy. So that model where it's like, this is the price, it's very, very reasonable and you are not pushing lengthy uh, treatments on anyone. You're just saying, come try it and then just keep booking as you see fit. Yeah. Yeah, basically. it's kind of, I agree with all of that, which is why, why this has ended up this way, Vanessa, because it is stressful. And you, and you, I think I'm not, weirdly, I'm not a very organized person, but, but I think having, having, like, I think an acupuncture treatment is chaos. There's the, there's the chaos of us as practitioners. There's the chaos of the patient. There's the chaos of the patient's symptoms. There's the chaos of the practitioner's diagnosis and application. And then the treatment in the middle of all that. So having everything else as smooth as possible, I think is really important. You know, it's, it's kind of having like a nice and easy booking system, having clear policies, having people are always going to, you know, challenge in some way and we have to face that. But I, I, I've tried to get rid of as much of that stuff as possible because it, because it's not, it's, it also it's not why you want to be an acupuncturist, is it? You don't want to be an acupuncturist to be, you know, really kind of butting heads over money or doing admin. Or, of course, we have to do these things, but as, as little as possible. And then, the, and then it really can be just the treatment. It's just the treatment. Everything else, 
you know, a lot of work can go into everything else, but to such an extent that you can't really notice it. Yes, absolutely. Um, and if you if you look at um, the people that are very successful in many fields, not necessarily acupuncture, that really is what they do. They trim the bits that they don't need. I remember, so in the corporate world, you get trained a lot on how to be better at your job. And a lot of the time that training is about what are the areas that you don't do very well and they try to bring them up to level. But for me, it all changed when I met someone who said, actually, that is not the best use of your time. The best use of your time is find out what you are really good at and then make sure you can spend as much time as you can doing that. So if you're rubbish at admin, just farm it out. Find someone very good at it who will do it for it, pay them well to do it, and then you have even more time to do what you're really, really good at because actually what people pay you for is for what you're good at, not for all this other stuff that you're going to struggle doing, not enjoy it, and it's going to take a lot of your mental energy. Mm, no, I, I, yeah, I completely agree. It's just sort of taking away as much stuff as possible. And, and like you say, wisely recognizing what we don't enjoy and what we're not so good at and trying to get that automated or somebody else to help you or or something like that, I think. And also for patients, I think that, that, you know, especially new people that maybe don't have much knowledge of what we do or how we do it, all of that stuff is, you know, they can come in as easily as possible. And by coming and find out about you book an appointment, see how everything works. You know, that's that's kind of, I think that's that's good for them too. Yeah, and a lot of people, when they're going to try something new, there's a bit of a financial risk, right? So if um, if you want to try acupuncture, but you call someone and they say, you know what, I charge 150 pounds, then you're going to really think very carefully, do I do I really need that acupuncture treatment? But if you, if you look somewhere up and they say, you know, I charge 30 pounds, that's the cost of a, a meal in London. That's not even like a high-end meal. Yeah, so... Yeah. People are like, okay, well, I can try that. If it doesn't work, I'm fine. Mm, yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Which is why we have a sort of, you know, not a fix, but a sort of generalized two-treatment policy for, for new people. Depending, of course, there's lots of long-term things. But, but um, and, I, and I think that's good because, because or, uh, no, I, don't, I shouldn't say that. It's good for us. But it, it's, it also gives patients responsibility. Which is, which is again, another psychologist. I, he, he was kind of looking at my model here and he, he was describing, I can't remember, some projects, I think in Rwanda by that, I'm not sure. And a whole bunch of psychologists went to kind of in a similar way that we worked in Sri Lanka or in India to try and be of service to, to some groups there. And they did a thing where they set up the, the psychologist in an S shape in chairs around the room. And people could walk in and sit down with you, talk to you in whatever way was possible, given the language barriers and stuff. And if it, if it were, if they weren't feeling it, they just go to the next person. And oh it was, wow! And it was but it was just set up so that the patients had responsibility and could choose. And um, and what kind of what I mean by that is that I think another pressure that I used to feel as a practitioner. Was what was the kind of verbal contracts I would get into with people? 
so that, you know, I seem to remember, I'm not sure, but I seem to remember, oh, you, you know, you recommend six sessions or something like that. Maybe, but I think when I was at college, it was something like that. It's just a blanket thing. But then six sessions, it's like you say, it's like six at 60, six at 30, like recharge, or, it's, or more and more and more. It's a lot of money. And then, and then, and then what are you promising somebody? Because you can't promise anything. You can see, you know, a thousand people with a particular kind of RSI and, and, and you know, have a confidence in, in positive changes for all of them. And then the next one you don't know. And you don't know if they need more than that, less than that, or none at all. It, it's kind of patients want to be told as well. This is, this is where it gets dangerous for me. They want to be told. It's almost like that, you know, we're conditioned to have that kind of almost like a GP relationship. Yeah. Patience. Now, okay, so I've got this, this, and this. How many, every day I have this conversation, like you're sure. How many treatments do I need to do? How far often should they be apart? So we're just like, have to see how you feel. Almost, if we're talking about things that you can relieve symptoms, however chronic it is, however bad it is, I would say, generally say to somebody, have two sessions and see how you feel. And within those two sessions, I want to see some change that's tangible to you, even if it's fleeting, because of course it will be fleeting uh, if it's long-term and chronic. But, and then that allows that person to feel something and then, and then come back of their own volition. And then you can go, okay, so let's, let's, and then people, people will have a huge change and say, well, you know, how long and how often now? And, and I tend to say to people, I would come as long as you're getting better. And if you stop, if it plateaus, then let's have another conversation, but it's up to you. And I think that's quite a liberating thing to say as a practitioner, you know, of course give guidelines and if asked specific questions, we'll give us, give the answers as best we can. But I think I think the patient having some responsibility. Yes, because otherwise the pressure. I had someone come recently um, with um, sciatic type pain, and um, they said, you know, I have been going to this physio for six months weekly. I've spent all this money. The physio has given me all these exercises. I am not getting better. Can you fix this? And you have that moment of like, I don't know. I actually do not know. <laughs> like, you know, I, I honestly, I don't know if I can fix you or not. So I said exactly the same. I said, well, generally in a couple of sessions, you, you get a feeling for how well you respond to acupuncture. So why don't we do that? And then you can decide because I didn't want her to, to then go mm. to someone else later. I said, I had six months of physio and then I went to this acupuncturist for four months and <laughs> took all oh, my money. <laughs> I think you're completely right. I had, I had a few kind of, you know, uh, earlier in my kind of acupuncture career, like I said, I was lucky. I just tried to spend as much time as I could with different practitioners and different people that came to teach. And I don't know, I'm, I think I'm always, I'm always attracted to the, you know, sit in the question and the practitioners should say we don't know as well because we don't know nothing it doesn't matter what the research says it doesn't you know nothing is nothing works all the time nothing and no practitioner works all the time but you know we can we can we can say what our understanding would be based on experience and then like you said go away try and see and then and then it comes down to as well there's the other thing which i'm sure you've had and 
I, I've lo- I had countless times, you'll have somebody like, what is getting better? Even just like a day or two ago, I saw somebody that had had chronic back pain for years and years and years and years. And after two sessions, a marked improvement. You know, one of those like 50% kind of, you know, not to say that that was staying at that, but that, you know, and I'm like, wow, I am the business. <laughs> and, uh, and, but, but for him, he was on the other 50%. He was just on the other you know, it's like, have you been? Yeah, was this, this, you know, and we broke it down. It's like, okay, so it's, I'm like, so it's like at least 50% better. Yeah, but there's the, so you can't even control, you know, because you can say, well, to me, that's an obvious win to me. But to him, it wasn't. So, <laughs> you know, it has to be how he feels about it or they feel about it. Yes, and it's it's so difficult for me sometimes to not take it personally. I I had a patient um, that came and um, there was no connection from the beginning. You just feel it. Yeah. I th- I remember sitting there and thinking this person's not gelling with me. I don't know what's going to happen. Mm. And they came once, and then I received a text saying that I actually had made them worse. Mm. Um, and that was so incredibly upsetting because. Mm. In my very very short career, this was the first time that happened, and yeah. and then I did I did, I did not even know how to handle it. So in the end, I offered them a refund, which they politely declined, but it left such a yeah. bad taste in my mouth because I was like, oh my god, and my treatment had been really actually quite basic and quite gentle, but mm. I don't know, I don't know, and I will never know. No, you won't. And I and I and I, uh, I empathize with you, and I feel your pain, and I'm afraid it's not going to go away. In my experience, because it's you know twenty something years, it happens. It happens on a regular, irregular basis, and it always hurts. But I think, in a way, it's okay that it hurts because it's otherwise, you know, what are we doing? But, but it then it comes back to that thing, that impossible ideal. Mm. not attaching to the in inverted commas successes and not in, attaching to the failures I think that's that's good work you know because it's, it's it's harder to let go of the failures it's easier to let go of the successes so work on the successes you know work on, work on those kind of like okay great and, you know let's move on and yeah, then, that's what Hamish has been trying to teach me for 15 years now it's impossible but it's it's good to it's good to maintain the work because those situations, they just happen. They just happen. Yeah, so you have your own shop in a way. So that's got to have been a, a substantial financial um, investment. So how have you navigated the first and the second lockdowns? Oh. <laughs> well, the first was, firstly, it's very kind of, you know, on a kind of energetic and personal level, just, and I'm, you know, to all kinds of businesses and to all of us practitioners, for me, uh, you know, a practice space, whatever it is, if it's this place, I've treated people in the back of a car in Sri Lanka or on a building site or all over the place in India, you're kind of holding the space and nurturing the space in some way. So to close the door and lock it and walk away for three months is very sort of painful and counterintuitive. So there's that. Then, yeah, you know, financially, of course, it was a a big hit and we had a very, uh, you know, 
very sympathetic, <laughs> but with no help whatsoever, landlord. He said that, oh, that's so tough, but yeah, you can still pay. Um, but we did we did get the premises grant. So between between that and my wife working, and you know, we got we we, we got to the end, and we, we were okay. We were you know lucky, I would say. And then, um, yeah, it's been an interesting time, hasn't it? It's been. I described it. I still describe it. If we reopen, all of us reopened in July, it's been to me. It feels like rubbing your head and rubbing your belly at the same time. There's all these new systems to manage. So there's all these, you know, all these new things to do and really important things. Um, and I think, you know, I've been we've been trying really hard to build those. In going back to our early early part of the conversation, build those organically into the system. So even though they, of course, you're going to notice the temperature gun and the sanitizer and the consent form and the COVID form and the air purifier and the, everything, 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 the masks, that it becomes a more of an organic part of the clinic, hopefully. Um, so this next phase hasn't changed for us, really. We just made up. My, my thinking was when we came back out in July was that I, I feel like we've gone over the top with precautions and I'm happy with that and we'll maintain that. Um, so it hasn't really changed, to be honest. We've been really busy. I think, I think obviously busy in a different way because we have to have a slightly reduced capacity to keep everybody as safe as possible. Um, I think, again, we're lucky because our style of practice the model and the premises just happened to work well for a pandemic. Obviously, yes. that, obviously that wasn't in my business plan. <laughs> they do, they do. You know, we're kind of minimal contact. We did, we'd spend five minutes with somebody, needles in, gone back. Five minutes, needles out. Um, everybody's far apart. We're in a really drafty, well ventilated Victorian shop. Um, it works well. It's a tiring way to work. I think it's more intense. I think. People understandably are suffering, you know, the, the kind of, you know, the pan, I don't know how you found it, but for us, we know it's the pandemic within the pandemic, which was everybody waking up between 3 and 5 a.m. with nightmares and panic attacks, and understandably. Yes, um, I, had a, I had a week, I had a week, I think it was about two weeks ago, where literally everyone that came through the door sat down and started crying. Yeah, that's full Everyone. On. And you have to, you, you have to, you, you know, there's not much you can do about it as a practitioner, but it's, it's really important to stand back and acknowledge it to yourself and your colleagues that it's more intense because otherwise it can creep up on you, you know. You have to be like, you know, it feels like I'm doing the same thing with a mask on, but it's more intense. Yes, I actually found myself, um, then again, I guess it's, it's part of this thing where you have to, as a practitioner, kind of um, learn to, detach a little bit but without stopping caring um, but I did have a period of time where I was actually dreaming about my patients I had someone um, with very very emotional difficult Bell's palsy and I do a lot of fertility and at some point I was having dreams about those patients and uh, and obviously it's good that I care but at the same time uh, it's a bit too much if I'm actually having dreams about them yeah, I think, yeah, I, it's a hard thing, Vanessa. I remember all these kind of, I remember when I was at college, there was a there's quite a famous Qigong acupuncture teacher called John Chen, Dr. Chen, I think, used to come and teach at our college sometimes. And I, did, 
I'm the kind of person that listens to a whole lecture or reads a whole book and remembers one thing, and I'll keep that for 30 years. And the thing that that, that he said that I remember was that, because we were all just about to qualify, and he's just like, you're all going to be sick in the first year. It's just, you're all going to get tired. You're all going to get, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a factor. So I guess, I guess looking after yourself as much as you can around it, you know, nourishing ourselves as much as we can, all that self-care kind of stuff that we know and possibly and advise on and possibly don't do ourselves. Um, but it's, yeah. And then, and then, yeah, just finding a way to hold it lightly, but it's really hard. It's really hard. It's, it's like, a, I always try and think it's like um, another way that I've found to kind of make it easier over the years is to take my, my patient very seriously, to take, acupuncture very seriously but try not to take myself seriously in fact the opposite of that you know to, to do the opposite of that it, it, you know to keep some some lightness in it and um because it you, you do you do take it home it's, it's kind of hard not to again this model we work in i think it's easier how we work yeah. not to do that yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I've I've been thinking because obviously coming from a city background, I'm always I'm always thinking about um, organizations, corporations, and I'm always interested in the very very new practitioners like me. Um, a lot of us have found ourselves in a situation where we just started practicing and then we were shut down by a pandemic. I do feel. Um, I do feel that it's added a, a really hard level of extra difficulty. Um, there are there's a much bigger group of um, very experienced practitioners who are financially much more secure. So they've had a different view in terms of coming back to practice than those of us who are like, oh my god, I've just started. I've invested all this money and I'm, I'm really scared. Yeah, and what, and and that's what you mean. I, I can completely understand that. You mean you mean that the, for the slightly newer graduates, that it's that it's the fear, the fear of how it builds back up again. Yes, or sometimes I think for some people they, they they've not even had the time to build up a practice. The people that graduated in the September or October before the lockdown happened in March, many of them were still tying loose ends. Yeah. So yeah. I'm just hoping that we're not going to lose a lot of the fresh people. Yeah, I, I hope so too. I hope so. I think it's, I, I think you and I maybe had this com a bit of this conversation before, but I was thinking a lot because I, you know, speaking a bit with you and some, and we see quite a few students come here for treatment, acupuncture students and recent graduates. And I'm also a bit like, you know, we who knows where this goes, this pandemic, and who knows, but, you know, on some level, surely we're all going to be fundamentally changed in the way we work. And I don't, by we, I mean the, the macro rather than the microacupuncturist, but it's, and so, you know, I think, I think, you know, there, there'll be changes probably. Who knows how our practice, how, how our practices will look. We might not be quite in the kind of sanitizing mask wearing, but we'll be, I think it will be different. And so I wonder if newer practitioners will have the fluidity and the, the kind of lack of fixed position to adapt to that better than, than some of us that have been doing it longer. You know, I think it's, but, but that's not to take away. I'm sure it's, it's, um, 
Yeah, very stressful. I also think, you know, coming back to practice now, I, I feel the you know, we're, we're, we're lucky here. We, we're, it's, a, it's a busy clinic. And, and, and you know, I don't want to, that's not to sound bragging or to, I, I understand how it's to, to be less busy, you know, I understand. And so we're lucky. Um, but I feel like there's more demand now especially since we came out of lockdown, people are really struggling. They're really struggling with all the things we were talking about, especially there's everything that we'd normally treat, that whole arc, plus, you know, the anxiety and depression and insomnia and and, and um, the post-COVID stuff. I don't long COVID makes me feel depressed as an expression, but the, post, the post-viral stuff, we're seeing people every day. And in, and in our experience so far, we are definitely being of use to these people. Who knows what's to come in the arc of the of that of that virus, but we are definitely, definitely being of use to people, I would say. And so, you know, as an acupuncturist as well as I think as a therapy, it's a perfectly placed kind of modality, you know, with very little contact as practitioners and you know, we're still a contact therapy, but we're not, you know, we're not hands all over people or up close to people. And so I think I think it as a profession, it kind of puts us in a good position too. So I hope that the the, the newer practitioners would take heart from that. And 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 that it's you know it's such a cliche, and you never want to hear it, but it's kind of you know it's such a long journey, and it will ebb and flow. My my practice has ebb, ebbed and flowed several times. I've had several junctions, and mm. they've actually been self-imposed. But if I hadn't done them, I probably would have stopped practicing. So, you know, these things we can, you know, we just need to step by step get through and and see because the opportunities might be might be more than we think. Yes, and something that you mentioned actually that's a really good point is about the newer practitioners um, maybe maybe being uh, more easily adaptable. We don't know, but um, I am a clinician at the City College of Acupuncture. And these years, third years, um, they've started the student clinic already with all the PPE and all the COVID stuff in place. So they don't know anything else. This is their first time as student practitioners. This is, this is just, this is just the way they do it. So I think it was just the first day they said, oh, because obviously the cleaning materials are a bit (laughs) strong. I think the first day they said, "Mm, you know, not really happy about this smell. The second day, they had already accepted it, assimilated it. They got used to opening windows in between to ventilate, and it's not really a problem. They're doing just fine. Yeah, no, I, I think I think there's a you know there's something to that because if you think about, I'm sure we're on all the same kind of acupuncture forums, and I definitely got a sense from some some practitioners that have been you know going for longer that they're kind of like I'm, that's it. I'm kind of done. You know, this, this mm. is I want to practice, which is a sad thing but that provides opportunity for people in a different way so it's you know and and all these things i think i do really believe especially after i think i learned more of that working in different places that you know you just absorb these these kind of restrictions these kind of all these restrictions and we kind of just put them in the mix and then because essentially we want to deliver acupuncture and sometimes you have to kind of jump through a few hoops to do that and yeah, and just to just to keep going, I think the most important thing is to keep going. 
keep going, keep going. I, I can remember, you know, uh, graduating in 97 and some people didn't really start then and there was no pandemic. Mm. They just didn't really start and that's not a judgment. That's each person's, but I think you just start and you go. Pandemic aside, you just go treat friends, treat family, treat your housemates in lockdown. Just just go, just treat as many people as you can because each time you get better and that's still the same. And that, and that's, that, that experience is, is valuable. Yes, yes. I think for me, I always said that, that um, this is not even plan B. This is like plan Z. <laughs> so, so that's it. I have to practice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and no doubt, and it's, I think it's easy to think, isn't it? It's always relative. You just think, oh, you know, I think I qualified when I was 27 or 28 and I didn't feel young. And I've been through so many phases with it, so many phases. And that's a great thing too. Because it's a great, it's a great thing to grow and change, and you don't want it to be too fixed. Because then, when it was fit, if it's fixed, it's stagnant. If it's stagnant, it's probably dead. So it's good to it's good to ebb and flow. I think, and to be fluid. And I do think maybe the newer practitioners will be will be better at that. <laughs> Fantastic, Sean. This has been a great, great conversation. So. Just so that our listeners know where to find you. E5acupuncture.com and on Instagram, kind of. So everyone, go see Sean. He's fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, Vanessa. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.